This episode of The Call Sheet is brought to you by Plot Devices. Creators of the Story Clock Notebook. You've probably got a lot of cool story ideas because you are a genius. But turning your ideas into actual stories can be a frustrating and lonely process. That's why Plot Devices created the Story Clock Notebook. It's purpose-built for breaking and outlining stories using the simple method of visualizing your story like a clock. Whether you're writing a screenplay, blog post, or ransom note, learn more about how to make writing less gross at plotdevices.co. That's plotdevices.co. And get 20% off your first order with the code DIRECTOR20. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of The Call Sheet. I'm your host, filmmaker AJ Wedding, flipping through my old call sheets to find guests to share their journey across this crazy business. This episode is creature designer Neville Page. Neville was just nominated for an Emmy for his work on Star Trek Discovery, and he's worked on such films as Avatar, Minority Report, Star Trek, pretty much everything cool. How would we start up with this? Because I'm not a very good interviewer, so... (laughs) And I'm a crap interviewee. This is going to be horrible. I don't know. You've got a great voice. Now, my voice will put people to sleep. It does. It's When I was in acting school, my uh, voice coach, singing coach, kind of both, said, you have a voice like Marilyn Monroe. I was like, well, that's a weird. Is that a compliment? <laughs> and I guess it was, actually. He says, you're very, you're very breathy and sensual. I was like, thanks so much. That's exactly what I aspire to be as a lead male actor. <laughs> Breathy, sensual Marilyn Monroe. If I did drag, I'd have something going on. But Yeah, well, you know what? You go where the money is. And my voice is the same. <laughs> so I guess I could still do it. There you go. <laughs> so that so that being acting school, take me back a little further. So you were born in England. Yep. And you came here. What, what, what age did you move here? About five, five years old. Oh, okay. So for the most part, you were raised in Chicago? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely my memories of growing up are streets of Chicago. Uh, I have a few memories of England, fortunately, because I was very fortunate to grow up in a very theatrical environment. My dad is a musician, still is, and my mother um, was a dancer, and they met in the theater. She was on stage, he was in the pit, and uh, they fell in love, and... Uh, made me and my sister and we grew up surrounded by that world you know not necessarily i wasn't like in and on the stage as a as a child but all of their friends were musicians or performers of some sort and you don't know how that's gonna add up in your life as you get older those influences but it really made a huge difference yeah it's it's definitely helpful to have parents who if they're not in the business, they're at least accepting of your choice of wanting to be a part mm-hmm. of something like that. Because that's, you know, too many movies have been like, you're not going to Hollywood, get a real job, you know. It's true, though. I mean, <laughs> even even today, it's it's much more of a recognized career to make movies. But to behind the scenes, what we do, uh, particularly if you're a creature designer, you know, good luck convincing your parents who are attorneys or accountants or whatever that, yeah, I want to I make monsters in Hollywood. I'm like, what? That makes no <laughs> sense. 
um, I, I actually entered into this world, not out of a deliberate choice, um, but as an actor, I wanted to be in film in some capacity because of star Wars as has been a huge influence on many of us. I wanted to be on set. I wanted to see the props, the R2-D2s, and see the Death Star walls and and the cool costumes. And I thought, well, I guess the only way one experiences that is if they're an actor. And then you're wearing the costume and you're standing on set. And yeah, that must be what it is that you do. And because there was no exposure when I was younger to creating, world-building making creatures i i heard of rick baker when star wars came out but it was it's kind of like one of those sad observations that you make of oh they do that but i'll never do that i'll never be able to afford to go to college and learn how to do that or i was in chicago at the time i'll never be able to get to hollywood who do i know in hollywood i'm at the time i was you know 12 years old so that was not even a dream it was just an observation that other people do but coming from the exposure of theater it's like well i could maybe become an actor which is also delusional well i'll just be an actor then <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's all it takes is make the decision and you will be an actor um, i dub the yeah actor if only <laughs> so uh but you still i mean you moved to hollywood at a pretty young age like how did that happen what was the what was the thing that made you make that decision to move and how did that happen for you when uh, i think it was eighth grade i was making the decision of you know do i want to go to a high school that has like is really theater based or um or what and i didn't know but i was accepted to uh, a high school that was at the time very reputable it might still be lane tech high in chicago so i went there and when i graduated from high school which ultimately i graduated this is a convoluted story but parents got divorced that whole uh, love thing didn't work out in the end um <laughs> as it doesn't for so many of us but when i was in chicago planning on moving out to california to go to acting school at the time i think i was 17 or 18 and i obviously needed a job so i was working i was living in a place called rosemont uh, okay. which is near O'Hare Airport, if you know of it. And there was a hotel there that just opened up called the Weston O'Hare. And uh, because it was just opening up, I had, I had the opportunity to work there. And I worked specifically as a front office assistant manager, which was cool because it felt like I was a real adult getting real money, doing a real job. <laughs> and all of it was to save up to move. And one day, a crew of people started coming in that were really a very different clientele because it was a large group of people. And they said, oh, they're filming a movie just down the street here. Um, and uh, you want to be an actor, right, Neville? Yeah, yeah, I do. That's kind of the plan. Like, why don't you take care of these guys? Because they're some Hollywood people. And I thought, it kind of makes sense. Great. I, I'm <laughs> thrilled. So I was asked to be the kind of the point person that they would ask questions about, can I have another towel? You know, something, not anything glamorous, <laughs> you know, do you know how to work a jib young man? <laughs> no, we need more coffee. Um, so the producers, one of the producers that came out, um, she, the movie, by the way, was the breakfast club. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and at the time I was like, okay, Breakfast Club, that's, it must be the sequel to Breakfast at Tiffany's, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And um, so met John Hughes and the cast. And it was really just for me because I didn't know any of them. And I always, I must admit, I don't know how I got this natural point of view to not be giddy and silly and um, annoying around actors and other professionals. I always treated them like you're a human being. I'm a human being and um, I'm respectful of your time and your space. And, and it was great because I could actually have, and I think that's why they felt comfortable working with me is I wasn't asking for autographs and, and, you know, being unprofessional. It was also my job. So, but the, one of the producers, Michelle Manning, she was a lovely woman. It was obvious. And she, um, her camera went missing. Don't know if it was stolen. Don't want to give Weston a bad rap here, but it just was gone. And she was upset as she should have been. And she came down and said, is there anything you can do? And I just put everything aside to try and resolve the matter for her. And I, I did that with the majority of the the crew. And so she said, you know, if you're ever going to be in LA, cause I never told any of them that I want to be an actor. Cause that's, that's something you should never do. Um, <laughs> And she said, if you're ever in LA, look me up. I thought, oh, thank you so much. Will I ever? I'm going to throw in one other story that's amongst this being in a hotel because it really was so funny. And again, it all relates to where I am today. I would get phone calls for the various actors. And Emilio Estevez would always get these messages. And this guy would always be calling up saying, hey, is Emilio there? It's like, no, I'm sorry. He's still on set. Uh, he should be back at six this evening. Can I take a message? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm calling from London. Um, tell him that Tom is trying to get in touch with him again. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, no problem. And a few of these back and forth messages. And um, I thought I should probably get more specific. I said, I'm sorry, can I get your full name, please, sir? You see, it's Tom Cruise, C-R-U-I-S-E. I'm like, okay, thank you, sir. It's like, I wonder if it's the same Tom Cruise that was in that one other movie. <laughs> And yeah, it's a different Tom Cruise. Yeah. And how bizarre. I wonder what he's doing in London. He's doing legend. Oh, geez. Which, you know, I didn't know that at the time, of course, but, and if I did, I think I would have been unprofessional and just gosh, Oh my God, you're Tom Cruise. No way. <laughs> but why that is funny is years later, I'm sitting with JJ and Tom Cruise in JJ's office talking about, I think we were talking about oblivion maybe or something. I forget what it was, but regardless, uh, Tom was gracious. He, he's, he was wonderful with me and I, I've enjoyed him. And I said, do you happen to remember <laughs> you were in London shooting that one film with Ridley, uh, and you would call your buddy Emilio and leave a bunch of messages. He's like, he's looking at me really with a strange look in his face. He's like, yeah. I said, I was that guy. Who answered like, the you phone? aren't kidding me. I was like, no, isn't that weird? <laughs> And here we are. But that's, that's kind amazing. of as a part of the story of when I moved to L.A., I immediately thought, well, if I want to get in the industry, I've only got one phone number in my hand, and that's Michelle Manning. I'll give her a buzz. And I called her up. And I mean, if you only have one. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> if you only have one. That's a good one. It wasn't so bad. <laughs> um, yeah. So called her up, and she said, come on by Universal and – um, I'll show you what we're doing. And uh, she took me to one of the sets 
and it was I've been on some sets in the past um, because I was involved in in film in very loose capacity as an extra. So I was familiar with the world, but it was like, wow, this set's amazing. This is Universal Studios. It's a big set and there's a whole lot of activity. She said, yeah, I got to go back to the office. Just stay here. Make yourself at home. They know that you're with me. Um, There's going to be a really cool moment today where a motorcycle is driven through a wall onto the stage. And she said, you remember Michael Anthony Hall? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. She said, oh, he's in this too. Weird Science is the movie. (laughs) And they're filming that scene where the... You know, the, uh, the portal has been opened up and, uh, <laughs> and I just was like, this is unquestionably what I want to do with my life. Not act. I, I don't, I, it's not really what I'm cut out to do. I really want to do this stuff. I saw the artwork. I saw the other side of the wall, literally the side that's made of the one by twos. <laughs> I thought this is so incredible. I love how these things are made. Anyhow, Breakfast Club was a huge influence on me. I enjoyed the movie. Uh, anyhow, but when Michelle said, by the way, um, why don't you come to the premiere, the <laughs> cast and crew, excuse me, at Universal Studios? And I was flat broke. I lived in El Monte, if you know where that is, compared to Universal Studios. Yeah. I had a 50cc scooter. That was my car. <laughs> I'm a big guy. I'm 6'4", and it's a 50cc scooter. It looks like Megilla Gorilla, you know, on a tricycle. And she said, if you could make it, um, and of course, I'm not going to announce that. Yeah, I'll show up. Can I valet my scooter? <laughs> so I didn't want them to know that I was impoverished and I look ridiculous. So I scooted my way at like 8 o'clock at night, freezing my ass off because <laughs> it was so cold. And I arrive, I hide my scooter kind of behind a bush and I go in, you know, brush off the, uh, the dirt and the gnats <laughs> and I arrive sort of red carpety for me. It was red enough, you know, <laughs> it may not have even been red, but I perceive it now as red <laughs> and Emilio is there and he remembered me and he says, Hey, no, I'd like you to meet my girlfriend. And he brings his girlfriend over and she's like, hi, how are you? And I was like, oh, nice to meet you. Who's this? <laughs> oh, it says Demi Moore. It's like, oh, nice to meet you, Demi Moore, <laughs> whoever you are. And I sat at the table with um, the entire Sheen Estevez family. <laughs> and uh, Martin Sheen was so, and I knew who Martin Sheen was. Um, he made me feel so welcome and comfortable. It was kind of amazing. I did not expect that. And yeah, so I left that night thinking, what the hell has just happened? (laughs) I came from Chicago in the hopes of maybe having a connection. And I just sat with Martin Sheen and family watching The Breakfast Club. This is clearly, (laughs) I am going to be successful within like a week or two. Sure. Many, 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 many years later, (laughs) I started to actually find myself getting back into potentially working in the industry that story does go on by the way more in uh, an incredible way but we can carry on with other things maybe maybe we'll <laughs> i don't end. know that's pretty uh, pretty interesting it is but it gets better we can, and, and you're involved ironically with it with the whole michelle manning relationship because interesting because i did i not ever tell you this i don't think so well, let me finish the story. Yes, please. <laughs> so um, 
this will be just chunks of my life. I, I basically, after that experience of um, the whole breakfast club thing, it was like, okay, I know what I want to do now. I should finish acting school. And I did. And um, I did so well that I worked at some of the best restaurants in Los Angeles. <laughs> As do all actors. Yeah. So, you know. And, you know, I started getting auditions, which were clearly like my, my agent at the time just felt like I got to get them out there. Because legally, I'm supposed to put them on auditions. <laughs> uh, and I was doing, I was auditioning for Sapporo Beer. I remember noticing that I, this doesn't feel right because 6'4", Caucasian guy auditioning for a Sapporo Beer commercial and every other person was a, an, a Japanese um, guy who looked nothing like me. I was the only giant Caucasian guy. And he's like, wait a minute. <laughs> That was the beginning of where I thought, I'm not liking this industry. And the reason, the, the main reason why is because I had no control over it. None. It was so subjective. And yes, I could do a monologue in my living room if I wanted to, but I had no control over the trajectory of, of that career. And I, I really didn't like that. So I came home and I'm living in Pasadena. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to go to... I'm going to go to art school. There's an art school up the hill called the Art Center College of Design. And that seems appealing. I haven't been to it. I haven't seen it, but I heard of it. And it sounds like it's a cool place to go. I'm kind of done with the acting thing because I'm a waiter now. And that's what I do. And all my friends are actors, waiting tables. This doesn't seem right. I understand now what it, what it means. And, you know, I, I have a different perspective of it. But at the time, it was like, I am done with acting and I'm good with that. Well, but the control I think is I, I had the same thing with when I was an actor as well. Mm -hmm. It's like at some point you just go, I can't be in a business where I have no control over my career. Yeah. So I totally get it. Yeah. And, and it's liberating, you know, to make that decision. And I called my mother up um, and said, I'm giving up acting. Um, it wasn't a waste, but I'm giving it up and I'm going to go to a college and get a degree, a, a bachelor of science degree in industrial design. That's what I'm going to attempt to do. And she's like, that's great. I support you on that. Hung up the phone, walked away. I remember specifically it was about three paces and phone rang. I walked back to it. Hello. Yeah. Neville page. Um, this is sketch Hendricks from general hospital. Uh, we have a role for you if you're interested. Yes. I'm in. Forget our center. I'm going to be an actor. I have a role. And I really did feel that way. It's like, you just never know when it's going to happen. That's what people tell you. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Well, as soon as you walk away, that's when it happens. Yes. Yeah. I'm in Cabo. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that that was yet another turn where I thought, okay, I've got to do this. So Sunset Gyro Studios, I go in and um, get my makeup and costume on. And I'm told, you know, the role, by the way, is uh, you're going to be in it for a, a few episodes because it's it's a cool role where you you're in the pizza parlor. And you're hearing the underground Asian gang and their <laughs> motives. And is it Jake and Felicia? I, I apologize know. for those General Hospital fans <clears throat> or fans of me in General Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you remember, <laughs> but I was the pizza guy and I went from table to table and I was taking it all in. And they were telling me that, you know, you're going to kind of gather the intel and at some point it's going to get you into trouble and you're going to die. I was like, I get to die. I get to be killed. This is pretty cool. And it was. I got to say, more pizza? That was the line that got me in SAG. And nice. Congratulations. Thank you. 
And then there was another day and it was similar. And then that was it. They're like, yeah, we wrote you out. What do you mean wrote me out? I'm pivotal. <laughs> I'm pivotal to the narrative of your story. You can't write me out. Let me talk to someone. It's <laughs> not what I said. I just knew it was over. Um, and that was it. You know, I hung my head in shame when I went back to the restaurant I worked at. You know, can I have my Saturday shift back? I really thought I was going to be a someone. <laughs> Don't they all, son? Yeah. So yeah. how does this get back to Michelle Manning? You said this was... I have no idea. I oh, okay. That up. Well, <laughs> I mean, um, I'm, I'm mostly interested in the part where he said it, it comes back to me. Yes. It's <laughs> like, how do they get back to me? Michelle. <laughs> Michelle, I mean. Well, so then cut to the acting thing did not work out. I decided, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going to try and get into the school. I got into art center, which um, I chose to go with product design in the industrial design category. And I learned how to become an industrial designer, consumer products, medical products, um, automotive products. And I loved it. Met a guy named Scott Robertson. And he and I became roommates. We hit it off. And at the end of college, we decided rather than take a job, why don't we do something super crazy and start our own design consulting firm? which is nuts. <laughs> but we both figured you have nothing to lose. Financially, um, relationships, we have nothing. Uh, so how far can you fall? <laughs> and, you know, that was a that was a conscious choice. So we, You get your Saturday shift back. <laughs> I always, I stayed in touch. <laughs> I remained in good standing just That's... in case. So anyhow, Scott and I, we both did internships in San Francisco area. So what that meant was we sort of had clients up there. So we decided... Let's put our portfolios together, create Studio X was our company name. We got incorporated, did all the right thing, got investment money, and we moved up to San Francisco, uh, Petrero Hill area, and started our consulting firm in a an old loft, just a cheap old loft space, which right now I believe that loft goes for $2 million. Oh, it's changed quite a bit. And we designed um, everything from bikes to wheelchairs, to uh, toys. Um, and the toy thing for me was really fun because I was exercising a little bit of that entertainment side and also doing something that I loved as a hobby, which was sculpting. But mostly I was doing AutoCAD, drafting, engineering, working with some incredible engineers and all of that, like I was saying earlier, you don't know how those things are going to add up in your life, what kind of a foundation is being almost created for you in a way. Yeah. But you, I, I feel like you have to be open to these different opportunities, even if they're not on the line of where you think you want to be going, mm -hmm. you're like, well, this is interesting. Let me go that direction. And I think that's part of what kept you going in the, you know, you say, oh, it seems really strange that all of these things came together for me. I think it's because you were open to it. Yeah. Yeah, that or I I, I have uh, commitment issues, you know. <laughs> it's like, I don't know about this job, man. Let me try that. That looks nice. Is that well, just, grass? I, I only I only mentioned that because I was just thinking about this the other day. I uh, when I was in college, I was an actor as well, mm -hmm. and uh, I was very focused on people saying that I was a good actor. Yeah, you know, I wanted to know that I was good, and so I studied like crazy, and I did all the plays, and and the professor that I respected most uh was a woman named joan harrington and she had written books and she had produced movies and so like she was the person i was just like i want to be you mm -hmm. you know and i talked to her before i left college and i said you know what do you think i should do 
you know, this was I think a year before I was done. Um, and she said, well, have you ever considered being a producer? And it like, it killed me. I was like, does she think I'm not a good enough actor? Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm producing a movie at the time yeah. in college. But that's a dirty secret. I was doing, well, I was, I was doing it so that I could act. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so it was probably the biggest compliment she could have ever given me, but I wasn't open to it. I wanted right. to hear, you know what I mean? And yeah. so that's kind of what I'm talking about is you were thinking, well, I don't like this, but this still is very interesting to me. Let me see if I, even though it wasn't along a certain path that led you to the film industry directly, mm-hmm. you still got there. Yeah. And, and so let's go back to, I don't want to monopolize this conversation, oh, no, but like, I don't mind getting back to, uh, um, I'd like to interview you. Oh, <laughs> I'm going to do a podcast <laughs> and I'm going to interview you so it can come back to me. Oh, there you go. There it is. <laughs> um, well, I've started this business with Scott and we're doing that for a while and we essentially got bought out um, by a company that was doing wheelchairs. But we we did a lot of product development and engineering and the greatest to this day experience as a job was that one because the things that you designed, you got to see firsthand how it affected not people's um, pleasures but when you see that what your efforts and your design concepts are doing to people's lifestyle and quality of life, when you design a wheelchair, you're part of a team that's making someone's life more comfortable. Um, they they have more access to life. And working with the disabled, whether it be uh, geriatric or pediatric and all the things in between, it it's a very different responsibility that you feel in terms of how when you work on something you know that it matters it has to be safe it has to be affordable has to fit within insurance parameters Um, it it should look cool as well if you can squeeze it in there whereas with entertainment design there are still very real things that you have to achieve but you know that no one's going to die actually from your efforts (laughs) Um, and that was just the greatest experience is to see people in our product and and say uh, and give us feedback. And sometimes the feedback was not great, which, you know, you make a better product. Um, but the feedback was typically, thank you so much. I my uh, I, my body doesn't hurt as much or I now can go easily downstairs. Um, that's a thing you can do in a wheelchair, believe it or not. Wow. I can go down, go off of curbs Um and because you added shock absorbers and because the frame is carbon fiber and it absorbs the impact, uh, things are comfortable, et cetera. You know, that's, that to me was one of the greatest experiences. And conversely, it was also the least creative visually. The opportunity came for the company to sell the company and we were going to go with it. But we thought, ah, let's, let's see what else is next. Scott, what do you want to do? We were thrown a bone to move to Switzerland and teach at the Art Center College of Design in Switzerland. That's a whole different story. When, when that ended, after a couple of years, we moved back to the States and Scott and I were just trying to figure out, do we do another company? Do we do things independently? And I thought, I really want to get into entertainment design. We had a studio where we were doing bike helmets, hockey gear, a variety of things. <clears throat> and um, then... And this is how it works in terms of just 
bizarre good fortune. I was teaching at Art Center in Pasadena again. So was Scott. And one of the alum knew us and said, hey, you guys design wheelchairs, right? It's like, yeah, we do. Did. Uh, well, we're designing a ride right now that needs basically wheelchair users to be able to get on and get off. And you guys know that world. Uh, and Scott, you were an automotive designer and Neville, you were product. So could you design a vehicle for a theme park ride that would accommodate people in wheelchairs? And we thought, yeah, certainly. What's the theme? It's Men in Black, the ride. <laughs> oh, I love that movie. Sure. So long story short with that one, <clears throat> we get the job. And I was thinking, oh, I so want to do a creature because I love <laughs> the creatures in that film, which is, you know, Rick Baker and team. And I knew Rick Baker. I didn't know him personally. I just knew of Rick Baker. His work, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, God, I'm in L.A. and I'm so close now to maybe meeting Rick one day. So in the end, they said, yeah, if you want to design a couple of creatures, sure, have fun. <laughs> Will we use it? Doubtful. But yeah, go ahead, Neville. Uh, we'd like to see what you um, can do. So I did a couple sketches, and it was more out of like uh, sympathy, I think, that they let me design <laughs> one of them. And that rolled into, that's actually not so bad. Would you want to do a few more? Absolutely. So we almost got uh, not all of the creature design, but we had a huge amount that was given to us to do for the, the ride, as well as the vehicle, as well as the guns and a bunch of other stuff. So it was a huge, <laughs> major job at the beginning of our Los Angeles consulting. The, the wheelchair aspect of it was covered, but the creature side, we still needed more people. And they suggested, if you're going to do this, and you heard me say this at Comic-Con, um, you're going to need more help. Can we recommend a guy named um, Carlos Suante? I was like, don't know who he is, but yeah, <laughs> I, I can pretty much work with anyone. So Carlos worked in our studio doing sketches. And I remember watching him, and I've seen artists handle a pencil uh, quite deftly. Uh, but watching Carlos is like, what are you doing with that magic <laughs> wand there called a pencil? Because I've never seen that happen on a piece of paper. It was incredible. And I just thought, well, I guess that's what you're supposed to do. That's how, that's the standard. Little did I know, it was way above standard. Carlos is still tops. Um, and then they asked more people to come on board and Carlos recommended Jose Fernandez, who is unbelievable at what he does. And then there was Brian Wade, Jim Cagle, uh, the list goes on. Um, George Shell. I know I'm forgetting a couple of the artists. I'm forgetting a couple of the artists here, aren't I? Anyhow, I had some incredible artists in the studio, and those artists were top of their game. And it was, <laughs> that's what I was surrounded by. So my education uh, to be a creature designer was this team of just A-list, A-plus list talent. Pretty incredible. I didn't even know it at the time. It was just like, oh, clearly it looks like every creature designer is just freaking great. So <laughs> I guess that is just what the standard is. So I did my best to, I aspired to that. <clears throat> Don't think I got there, but I aspired. And that's nice to have that reference point. Sure. And it gave me um, the beginning of a portfolio to think I could be a creature designer. But the tipping point was... Jose left his keys next door because a friend was working next door and he was at lunch and that person realized that Jose had left his keys. So they came over and knocked on our door and she looked in and said, oh my God, do you guys design helmets? Yeah, because we've done a bunch of helmets for hockey and, and equestrian and stuff. 
And she said, well, we, um, we're designing a helmet right now uh, for a film. I was like, oh, my God, for a movie? <laughs> uh, can you guys design helmets for movies? Wait a minute. Is that a wheelchair? Yeah. <laughs> There's a wheelchair in this film as well. You guys should, yeah, you should, um, let me hook you up with the props guy and let's talk about this helmet because it's, um, it's going to be a pretty big film and we need your help. Perfect. Sorry, what's your name, lady friend? Uh, I'm Colleen Atwood. All right, I don't know who you are, but you seem nice. <laughs> I love yeah. your conversations. You're so honest with people. <laughs> yeah. I don't know who you are, but you I seem nice. Yeah, some of this is what's in my head. Um, no, no, I'm taking it verbatim. This is what you said. So it's great being uh, a combination of ignorance and daft because I don't know who people are. <laughs> And at the time, you know, IMDb and the internet was not really a go-to thing where you just go, Colin Atwood, let me look up who you are. <laughs> but I eventually found out, and she was working with Steven Spielberg, and it was Minority Report. Oh, wow. Which Tom Cruise is in. I was like, oh, no way. <laughs> Don't really know him, but <laughs> I take his messages. <laughs> and that became the shoe-in to kind of working in film in a way. So we got this men in black thing and Phil Hedema, who's in charge of it says, we want to pitch an idea, which is in the ride. There's a moment where you come up to a guy reading a newspaper and it's just the newspaper, his hands, and you see a baseball cap. And if you shoot your um, laser at it, the paper drops and you see that it's a bunch of aliens holding two hands on a stick and a head on a stick. Wouldn't it be funny if that head on a stick was Steven Spielberg? I was like, oh my God, no kidding. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> so what better way to present that idea than first to pitch it to Will Smith because he's one of the um, producers, I think, on the right. I might be speaking incorrectly here. They said, you know, why don't you come with us to these presentations and pitches? Like, that is ridiculous crazy and yes yes and you know i got to sit with will smith and talk about Jaden and and children and that's what you do <laughs> and uh, i'm you know in the meantime i'm acting all cool and calm and then sitting with steven spielberg talking about uh, his buddy george doing um some sequels or prequels to star wars like oh god i'm i'm to be a fly on a wall is pretty amazing, but to be a guy in a room listening to Steven Spielberg talk about the stuff was just incredible. What is amazing about both Will Smith and Steven Spielberg is that they are real people who are conscious, cognizant, and fully aware of those that um, help them do their job. And I've met and worked with Mr. Spielberg a few times since then, and each time it's he's gracious and inclusive and why i say this is not to say yeah i know steven i don't know steven um i've worked with him but it, it is to say that when you have a, an icon a mentor I, well he doesn't know he was a mentor i chose him to be my mentor <laughs> um, and same with jj abrams you know you got these people that are major in the industry and you see how they conduct themselves and that becomes your reference point for how you would like to be given the opportunity to do what they do. I've worked with James Cameron for three years, almost side by side, very closely. And Jim's got his own way of doing things. 
And um, well, and how did you get to there? Because the, somehow the wheelchair also connects to Avatar yeah, as well. I guess is I'm probably bouncing around way too much. I apologize. No, no, bounce away. Um, but but it, the thing with Minority Report uh, and why it's relevant is because here I am designing Tom Cruise's gloves, uh, and and Scott Robertson was designing wheelchairs and bikes for that as well. So we we're both doing a bunch of different things for it. Years later, I'm, as mentioned, I'm, I'm working with JJ on a, a variety of projects. And because of Mission Impossible, Tom and JJ are obviously very close. And I had a meeting with JJ because I was showing him the helmets that I had done on Tron, which Jose Fernandez's company, Ironhead, um, built those helmets. So again, there's like all this connective tissue of people you love working with. And I just re- recently worked with Jose on um, some stuff for Picard. I'm going to say it. I think it's okay. <laughs> uh, but when Tom Cruise came into his lunch early and I was late on leaving, um, there was this whole thing about the helmet. I was like, I don't know if you know this, Tom, but not only did I take your messages for Emilio Estevez, but um, I was involved with your helmet for minority report Um. and so he tried on all the tron helmets like oh my god these are so cool this is really neat and you know the way they were fabricated by ironhead you know it's so top notch um tom recognized they were just good helmets and then when we're doing oblivion it's the same thing it's like all of a sudden these conversations happening again it's like what it's such a small world it really is and why that is important to reference is because you can fabricate and and pretend to be a good person uh, but in this industry those who are seasoned can sniff that out pretty quickly so it doesn't pay to be disingenuous and insincere um, it pays to be isn't it funny good. though that so many people out here are and so many people don't follow through on what they promise or what they oh, say yeah. i mean i i Speaking of Tom Cruise, he was my first boss when I, I remember, moved to town. That's right, yeah. So and, and along I, with my my manager. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, in fact, um, I had such great times there, and I have nothing but great. Th- I mean, I didn't see Tom Cruise all that often. Yeah. But you never got a sense that there was anything negative from him. In fact, his sisters at the time ran Odin, which was his uh, marketing firm or PR mm-hmm. firm, and their office was right next door. And his sister, CJ, I would talk to her for hours on end. And she invited me to their house for Christmas dinner because their Mm. family lives near my parents in in Florida. Yeah. And like, I just, you know, really welcoming, warm people who actually are so good at what they do, which is, I find that's more often the case than not. It is, but that's not a good story to tell, is it? You know, in terms of the media. They'd oh much yeah, rather true. Had the provocative. Oh yeah, Tom Cruise did this or said that. Yeah, it's like ah, oh, come on. I don't consider myself terribly talented. I, I consider myself a person who has good ideas, and I utilize the tools of art to communicate um, those ideas. And you know, I, I do just enough to get by. I think I, mean, I do at all that I can, but I mean, my skill level. I see other people coming up. And it's like, oh my God, I don't know how to use ZBrush that way. Well, but you- but it's not necessarily about the tools. I, I, I to me, if if you allow me to give my impression, oh yeah, 
uh, Europe. Sure. <laughs> That's true. I can say whatever you I want. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> uh, I've always felt ever since we started working together that you are a filmmaker at heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Filmmaking, storytelling is a skill within itself. Right. What you do as a designer is part of that. Yeah. That doesn't make up everything that is you because you are a filmmaker. That is a skill that maybe somebody's better at ZBrush than you are, but they can't tell a story the way you can. Right. And you have a point of view. (laughs) Uh, You know what I mean? It's, It's that I think is your talent. And all of the things that we do sort of around the industry, those are the skills that does it take talent to do some of the things? Sure. But filmmaking is the true thing that I think of when I think of you. Well, thank you. Um, That's, that's really a wonderful compliment. And, you know, I'm pretty humble and uncomfortable being complimented in any way. Sorry. Was was that a compliment? I'm assuming it's actually, (laughs) I'm humble and arrogant enough to think that you just complimented me. (laughs) That's what just happened. (laughs) No, what I said was you're not good at what you do. And so what you are good at is as a filmmaker. (laughs) You haven't made a film yet, so you're not really that good. Well, listen, (laughs) I'm in the same boat. So, you know, but we, but filmmakers, I feel like, uh, can recognize when they see their own. Yeah. And misery loves company. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 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 But I totally agree with you that the tools are a means to an end. And uh, for me, it's always been about communicating idea mm-hmm. um, and how you how you do that. It, it is not to say that the best ideas are communicated with ZBrush and with high polished illustrations, whether it be oil paint or Photoshop. I've seen incredible ideas. Well, my gosh, Ridley Scott, Sharpie, you know, <laughs> in a meeting, we're all talking because we're professional artists um, about the project at hand, Prometheus in this particular case. And Ridley's talking as well, but his hand is moving all the while. And you think that he's just, you know, scratching away at a piece of paper. And then you see <laughs> the alien from Prometheus. Like, what the heck just happened? Any storyboards, <laughs> no stuff. And it's not um, beautiful art in the sense that it's rendered, etc. He's not taking the time to do that. He doesn't need to. They're crystal clear communication and that to me is is the craft is here's the idea i'm going to share with you the idea using words or pictures and i'm going to articulate it with those in such a way that you understand it so flourishes and embellishments and shiny this and colorful that are not the things that make uh clear communication happen so for me again as uh, um explaining the nature of tools it's just use the tool to communicate the task at hand well yeah and and a big part of this podcast is for people to realize that there are you know obviously we interview directors as well and producers but it's really to show that there are plenty of things that happen in the film industry that you can be a part of and Mm -hmm. to sort of find your heroes in those different things that that you know maybe you want to be a director but you're not going to walk into that so what can I do in the industry that keeps me happy creatively uh, that I can learn mm-hmm. how to do? Like for me, it was editing and visual effects. Yeah. Uh, for you, it's designing. And, you know, you have that thing that you can do and 
people need it mm-hmm. in the film industry. And then eventually you'll do your projects that you want to do as a director, but you're still involved uh, in the creation of all these. I mean, you're involved in the most amazing movies uh, that have been made. Some of them. Yeah. I'm very lucky and very, very aware of the good fortune, the good luck. And, and how do you, how do you manufacture luck? You know, how do you, cause lightning only strikes once. So if lightning only strikes once, that's, that's a tough thing. But if you understand how lightning occurs, then maybe you can manifest it, the opportunity to get struck by it somehow. And that means wrapping yourself in tin foil, looking for the right weather, running on top of a hill by a tree. <laughs> and the chances are greater that you get struck by lightning in a similar way um speaking of metaphors and analogies if you are an artist which it's not necessarily inherent to be social you've got to wrap yourself in that tinfoil and run up on that <laughs> hill you got to be social you got to get out there you've got to meet with people talk with people go to events um, have the courage to go up to people uh, it's not like unlike dating what is the worst that can happen no Sure. And that's not so bad. Yeah. No really is, it, you know, get perspective on what no means. It really isn't personal. And if it was intended to be personal, screw them. Yeah. It still isn't. Well, and it, this business is all about no. I mean, how often have you heard no? Yeah. You know, and all it really means is no right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. It does. Ask again tomorrow. <laughs> uh, I, I can't remember if it was James Cameron that said this. Um, if not, it was the, the experience of Avatar which is the majority of what we do is wrong <laughs> as an artist developing stuff, you know, day one, here's an idea. Is that the idea that Jim's going to go with? Is that the idea that is right? No. <laughs> uh, so on to the next one. Nope. That's not it either. What about this? Nope. That's wrong as well. Wow. So wait a minute. It's true. The majority of what I do is actually wrong and unusable (laughs) not necessarily it's it's part of the process of discovery of finding what right is and that is our job is to help find what right is by doing the wrong thing and like we had said or talked about before a bad decision is better than no decision because that's a point of reference to move from Uh, with no decision made you just don't know where to go and you just kind of flounder in this vacuous space of nothing (laughs) so i'm a firm believer of make a decision be decisive and see what that yields absolutely i covet the design behind the marvel films and the people that are involved with it some of which i know personally and can you know kiss their their left ring finger when they walk into a room and just say oh my god you're so good at what you do and i will never be there um i'll bring up one person in in particular a guy named phil saunders do you know him i don't yeah it it, most people will not and that's ridiculous you know there should it should be like um jesus and then there's phil saunders you know and he ordered like we we talked about as well at comic-con ryan minerding like yeah yeah he was just there and nobody's there aren't, there isn't a line of people standing there. Picard should have been, or um, Patrick Stewart should have been in that line waiting to get his autograph, yeah. you know, uh, because I do truly think that people like Phil Saunders and, and Ryan, um, and there's a ton of others, uh, Charlie Wen, 
I shouldn't even start saying names because I'm going to leave out so many, but those are the three and Adi Granov that were kind of at the beginning of the whole Marvel thing creatively, many others, but these are the people that I know other than Adi. I don't know Adi. I'm probably saying his name wrong. <laughs> That's how much I don't know him. My apologies. But um, I saw their work at the beginning of um, the first Iron Man and thought, this is freaky stuff, man, because these guys are really good. Mm-hmm. Really good. I've known Phil longer uh, prior to Iron Man. He's an industrial designer, and his industrial design work is just phenomenal. But when you see what they do as artists, what they know uh, as technicians, uh, and the f- what's coupled with that, which makes them so lovely, and and desirable as human beings is that they are humble about what they do you know that though those are a handful of the people that i respect and love in the industry i don't know why we got on this topic how we got on this topic oh you were trying to tell me how bad of a designer you are that's right yeah compared to these guys they suck so um there you are well because you were saying you never get to work on all the things you want to right yes marvel love marvel stuff yeah um and there's plenty of other films and TV shows, but yes, I'm I'm fortunate that I'm in what I'm in with Picard and Discovery, and I love it. I absolutely love it because the the people are so good to work with, and we're we're doing some things technically that are kind of groundbreaking with utilization of the technology of digital, three D printing, um, yeah, just all sorts of stuff. So it's really it's a it's a great wonderful experience and the star trek movies with jj led me into these with alex kurtzman Mm. and the reason i got star trek is because of cloverfield Mm. and the reason i got cloverfield is because of my noman dvds the dvds JJ loved for whatever reason. And these are how to DVDs. How to right? DVDs. Yes. Yeah. Noman puts out these. Uh, they're now different today. Noman has online stuff, but the Noman School of Visual Effects, phenomenal school, um, had me do a few DVDs and a bunch of other artists do DVDs. They're old now, but the stuff that I was teaching is it doesn't go old. It's classic. Here's how you render a sphere based on lighting that the physics doesn't expire. And when it does, it doesn't matter. So, <laughs> yeah. um, And so JJ picked up on one of them and was so impressed by how I turned a circle into a shiny ball using Photoshop that going back to my comment about it's great being ignorant and it's not <laughs> because I got these emails um, from some guy saying, you know, I really love your DVDs and um They've been very helpful to me, and I'm, I'm making a monster movie. Uh, would love to talk to you about it. And I, at the time, I was in Avatar, like the last four months of Avatar, so it buried, absolutely buried, trying to wrap up stuff of you know almost three years. So I got another email from this guy saying, "Yeah, I, I, again, I got your DVDs; they're really awesome, and I want to talk to you about a low-budget monster movie I'm making." I'm like, "Ah, oh, that's cute." <laughs> it wasn't quite like that, but you know. <laughs> and then. Cut two, Noman calls me up and says, dude, there's this guy that wants to talk to you and they're now calling us to talk to you. We're not your receptionist. I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. Who is this kid? Come on, dude. So 
I looked at the bottom of the email, J.J. Abrams. I'm going to type this name. I'm going to IMDb this this chap, this guy making a low-budget monster movie and see what he's all about. Oh, my God. What have I done? I'm such an idiot. So I immediately called him up and uh, I said, yeah, I'm the dude with the DVDs that you love. Hey. I, I, was, I was much more like, oh, I'm so sorry, Mr. Abrams, sir, uh, for not calling you back. I'm an idiot. I was busy on Avatar, and he's like, oh, my God, uh, thank you so much for calling me back. And that's JJ, you know, it's so cool. And so I went to meet him and um, the, the creatives behind Cloverfield, and they said, we've got this idea for a film. We'd love you to design the creature. And I was like, man, that is, you have not seen, the only creature work that is out there is... Actually, the only creature work that would have been out there would have been some personal stuff that I did, maybe in a, in a book. Um, Avatar hasn't isn't coming out for like another couple of years, so right. I said, "Well, JJ, how do you know my work?" He said, "Oh, that's that sphere that you did." I was like, "You're basing, you're trusting me to design your creature based on a shiny ball I rendered." I'll, I'll do it. But that's it, awesome. And I think I even told him, I said, "At any point, when you feel like I am not the guy." I'm not going to be hurt when you say, okay, Neville, enough with the shiny balls. Time to do a creature. Fire me. <laughs> um, but he kept me on. And <laughs> to get back to the Tom Cruise uh, lunch with JJ, the funniest thing was here I am with Mr. Cruise showing him these helmets. And JJ says, can you show him that sphere thing? <laughs> I was like, what? That's so, that's so Cloverfield. What are you talking about? <laughs> but it, you know, JJ, he loves, he loves magic. Sure. You know, and he loves the reveal that is such a part of what JJ is as an artist. That's the magic trick. Sure. And that's why JJ liked it so much. I still remember I, the first time I was aware of him was the show Alias. Mm -hmm. And I had just accidentally watched the pilot. And was immediately just in for the, whatever this was, wherever yeah. this was going, I'm in. And I, I bought the, actually I didn't even buy the, uh, the DVD box set. I got it for free because when I was a waiter, we actually worked, um, a party that was during the release of the video game, mm -hmm. the alias video game. And so they, they gave all this free stuff to us. And so I was watching the behind the scenes and to your point, uh, he was totally in love with the magic of it. So like when, yeah. When he and his uh, producing partner would, uh, Brian Burke, yeah, yeah. When, when they would uh, figure out how they're going to shoot certain things, they're like they're using action figures and toys yeah. and just let's do this and you know, and that I mean for television that show I think changed everything. It was the first time you had what looked like a high budget action show. I mean I'm just I remember seeing you know, a hundred foot of dolly track for yeah. a close up, you know, and yeah. it's just like, wow, they really took the time to do this right. Mm -hmm. And now of course every show's like that. Right. But uh, yeah, what, what a great, I mean, he's always been a, a hero of mine since then. Same. It, the start of my career in film um, was Cloverfield and Avatar simultaneous. <laughs> I'd been on Avatar for a bit, but I had to kind of moonlight at the beginning of Cloverfield, which was the end of Avatar. Um, and I'm doing both of those. And 
hopefully Jim will forgive me for admitting this right now live, but there was a meeting that I had with Jim at the end of Avatar, which was supposed to be, say, at noon. And I had a meeting, my first physical meeting with JJ and uh, Drew Goddard and Brian Burke, Drew being the writer of Cloverfield, at the Chateau Marmont, <laughs> which is so cool. If, <laughs> very you know, Hollywood. Yeah, very, very Hollywood. I thought, oh my God, I get to be very Hollywood tonight at five. <laughs> well, the meeting with Jim was delayed until like three or so, and it's the other end of the universe, LA standards. And I remember I had to cut the meeting short with Jim, which you don't do. <laughs> <laughs> But I had to because I had to go see J.J. Abrams. I thought, you know, I hate the term. I'm living my best life. But I was and am. Uh, but when I remember when I told him, I said, I'm so I'm so sorry, but I do have an appointment I have to go to hoping that he won't say, well, what is it? Because I didn't feel like lying. Sure. But, you know, a mission of what's he going to throw through the wall when you say I'm cheating on you? <laughs> Me. <laughs> Me, I'll get I'll get to the Chateau very quickly. <laughs> but you know, Jim was uh, understanding, and because he didn't know the truth. <laughs> Sorry, Jim, but he you know he was understanding, and he uh, said, "Okay, well, you know, we'll see you tomorrow." And so I'm racing over to the Chateau Marmont, uh, not on my scooter. I'd upgraded from oh. my 50 cc scooter at this point. <laughs> I think I'm in a Honda, and as I'm driving to there, there's this giant. Uh, building size billboard that you see off of Sunset. J.J. Abrams, and it's his next project. It wasn't Cloverfield because we didn't even start it, but it was just his next project. I just looked at that and thought, I just left working on Avatar with James Cameron <laughs> to meet J.J. And there's this building size thing with J.J.'s name in it. And I'm going to the Chateau Marmont, which I know is just, you know, Hollywood. Um, and then I sat with him and... I just I just couldn't believe the great fortune that I have. And I didn't think it was going to turn into anything, honestly, because I really thought, guys, come on, I'm not that good. <laughs> I don't know if I can do what you want. And I'm sure some people would agree with that sentiment. But I got to do it, and I enjoyed it, and uh, some people love it. And, you know, to, if I can give one of the many compliments I would give to James Cameron for the experience in Avatar, the one thing that I will never forget, which is the greatest gift he afforded me and, dare I say, Jordu, um, Shell, Yuri Bartoli, and Wayne Barlow, because the four of us were working at Jim's house at the beginning of all this. And <clears throat> the, the thing that Jim gave us was the time, not to design, we were given that time too, but the time to get up to speed as we saw fit on the tasks at hand, which for the most part was creature design. And so I took that very seriously as I do with any engineering industrial design gig. You do your research. If, you're, if you've been asked to design an airplane, you learn how an airplane flies as much as you can. Um, if you've been asked to design a motorcycle you understand centrifugal force and why wheels stay up and all the things that go into a motorcycle before you start making swoopy shapes so i studied hard avian flight how does a bird fly if i'm designing a banshee um, one of the contributors of this i want to know exactly the parameters that make something fly not because i need to impress jim but because he's given us the time and i feel like that's the job um, that we've been asked to do and 
that is a gift. How many jobs are you given months uh, of time? Never happens. To, no, it, it doesn't. And Jim um, did. And, and and honestly, even though it is probably still the most expensive movie ever made, it still made lots of money. Yeah. So it did just fine. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I would like to think that the next ones will do uh, just fine as well. Um, but yeah, that <clears throat> I, I've been given other gifts by other directors uh, in terms of the experience that unbeknownst to them, they've bestowed upon me, uh, whether it be just a wonderful personality that's like, that is going to be what I want to be when I grow up. Um, or uh, Ridley Scott, first day of working with Ridley Scott, it was just him and I in his conference room. He just had knee surgery, so he's hobbling around because his knee hurts. And I'm sitting down. He hobbles over to me and says, can I get you a cup of tea? <laughs> and I'm thinking, yeah, certainly. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. And, you know, you will bark those orders to some PA outside the door. Get him a cup of tea! Ridley hobbles over to the teapot and makes me a cup of tea. <laughs> I'm thinking, come on. And that was, that's, a, that's an important thing. It's yeah. a simple thing. And it's sad that it's a relevant thing because he's just being a good person. That's how we should all be. <clears throat> but in this world where people can lose sight of just the normal um, decorum, normal conduct with other people. Sure. People like, you know, Ridley and JJ, et cetera, they, they haven't lost sight of that. And nor will they. People like that, it makes me so happy when they run the world because they set such a great example for everyone else. Mm -hmm. You know, I I used to have a friend who uh, wanted to be a director and what I think he thought that meant uh, was very much like, well, I'm in control, I'm in charge and and he's yelling at everybody and he didn't understand why people would listen to him and people didn't like him and didn't want to work with him. And it was like, Mm -hmm. well you haven't earned any respect number one yeah number two that's not what being a director is you know you if anything you should be hoping that your crew respects you yeah you know <laughs> not demanding it no hoping and working towards it you know, oh yes uh, you, yeah you lead by example yeah uh, and you reap what you sow, and there's a bunch of other sayings. There's some use. yeah there's a lot of that but, you know what I'm such a horrible interviewer I totally forgot to bring up the fact that you were a judge on Face Off for like a hundred years, two hundred years, two hundred years. Oh. I was, yeah, and um, I always will be. <laughs> I will always be. That was a great show. I, it you know, was. It, I feel like there were three, and maybe maybe I'm wrong in when these things started. But I feel like there were three reality contest shows that were the start of the whole craze. I feel like it was Top Chef, Project Runway, and Face Off. Mm. And Face Off still, you know, for years was just like, oh, I just love seeing all the creative work done on that show. And the best thing about Face Off, apart from me as a judge, um, <laughs> no, actually, that's it. That was the best thing about Face Off. <laughs> no, truly, the best thing about Face Off was that it was not manufactured. Um, it was, obviously, it's not scripted, but it truly was not manipulated from my point of view and my experience. Obviously, it's a show that needs guidance and direction. So there are things that you plan for. But there wasn't all the drama, interpersonal. No. Yeah, it was, If there was drama, it was real drama. Yeah. It happened. And usually the drama was because somebody made a mold that wouldn't come off. That was the biggest <laughs> drama. But what I'm getting at is the greatest thing was the collaboration. You know, contestants who were all 
trying to get that prize, you know, where they want to be the winner, they will, they put their stuff at risk, a lot of them, to help somebody else out. <clears throat> that, to me, is not only, I think, partially why the show was successful, but it's, it's a, and it's strange to even say, because it's a very competitive world, the makeup world, the creature, character design world, very competitive, and there are some horrible people in it. Obviously, they're in everything. Sure. But... That show was an indicator of the collaborative nature of working on projects, of the the, the spirit of sharing <clears throat> success. And that's that was the greatest thing that they could possibly do uh, in the show is, I don't know if it was intentional, but they saw that that's happening and that became something that they paid attention to in terms of like point the cameras at somebody who's struggling and everyone else who's coming in to help and not doing what they could do for their, themselves. And, uh, and Isn't that, that amazing, though, that that's as valuable as entertainment as the negative stuff? And why don't we see more of that sort of positive reinforcement? Well, I have my view on that, <laughs> is that I think a lot of, a lot of people, sadly, the human race in, enjoys to see someone rise for a moment but ultimately fall um are we inherently like that i'd like to think not but we certainly are fed it uh you know a daily dose of it mm. a steady diet of it that we think maybe that's what we want mm-hmm. you know why do we drink coke and pepsi it's not because mankind sought out the ultimate beverage it's because we've been told <laughs> that this is the drink you drink and i get it it's marketing and sometimes good things are marketed towards us. But for the most part, we all live our lives um, you know, being a sheep. And and I, I do as well. And I would like to think I'm aware of some things. I'd rather be a hypocrite than ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I think ignorance is a pretty gross thing. Um, I, if I'm doing something wrong, I'd like to be aware of it. And if I continue to do it, then I should embrace my hypocrisy. <laughs> rather than, well, I didn't know I was that way. Right. I wanted to kind of sum up something because there's nothing grosser in Hollywood than name dropping. And if we were to rewind this tape and count how many times I said J.J. Abrams, Tom Cruise, etc., it's pretty gross. But there's a reason why. And it goes back to what we're starting to talk about with regard to being a decent person. Um, you can have the motive to want to get ahead mm-hmm. in Hollywood that's okay. Well, obviously, we do. Um, it, it's how you present that motive, and it's how you are willing to go about it. Like, what are you willing to sacrifice? Time, uh, money, various things, you know, sleep. But if you're willing to sacrifice integrity and sacrifice others, then you'll probably do very well in this industry. <laughs> <laughs> because that does work for some. But you know what? Uh, I have no interest in selling my soul to the devil. And I find that I know that um, the various names I've mentioned are people that are good people that I do respect and that have inspired me to uh, continue. I never had to put it on, but to continue to be honest. And I think that's why I've been able to work so closely with some of them is because I'm not, there's no agenda other than, my job is to service you and your vision. I'll do the best job and I'll be honest with you. 
And if for whatever reason I'm not delivering, uh, giving you what you need, it's understood that I'm of no value anymore. And it's not personal. Mm-hmm. And it's yours anyhow. You've hired me to help you do your thing. Uh, and if I don't, uh, if I feel like my creations are not being used you know, or my design is ruined, you, you lose, you've lost perspective on what this is about. I'm a hired hand. Uh, I, I'm, I'm asked to realize somebody else's vision, somebody else's dream. And that is a very fortunate gig to be a part of. So, you know, being a good, honest person is is key. And why this all makes sense in terms of this interview as to having mentioned these names is because I keep running into them. <laughs> and if I was not good to them or they were not good to me, there's going to be some uncomfortable moments for sure. But there's also going to be some professional things that may not go the way you wanted because sure. that person remembers, oh, yeah, weren't you that's that guy, the guy that, that screwed once? us on that thing? Yeah, yeah. Were you were that guy that really was trying way too hard and it was uncomfortable or whatever it is. Just be yourself. Mm-hmm. And that that comes through. Sure. Well, and or always just be willing to learn. I mean, yeah. like you said, with JJ being so fascinated by this sphere made in Photoshop, it's because he has that. I want to learn what, what can I learn? Mm-hmm. You know, what will make me better as a person or as a filmmaker? Yeah. You know, if you, if you think you have all the answers, yeah, forget you go done. do your thing. Go ahead. <laughs> it's over. Enjoy. <laughs> and you know, the full circle with Michelle Manning, I was going to ask how this finally yeah. could get back to me. Cause it, it, and it will <laughs> the, my manager who, um, was your boss, which is so bizarre. (laughs) Again, that's another point of reference is you and I have become friends over time for a variety of reasons. But could you imagine if I was one way with my manager, I had a bad experience with them for whatever reason, um, that could have colored our relationship. Oh, sure. But the relationship I had with him was honest, was pure, it was what it was, and we're friends still. And so was yours with him. But one day... Um, my manager was saying, yeah, I got to run off to a lunch I'm having with a woman who's a producer. You should meet her someday. She's really nice. I used to work with her over at Paramount. I was like, oh, yeah, have, have fun. And he said, yeah, it's it's a good thing. We'll, we'll see about meeting up sometime down the road. Her name is Michelle Manning. I'm like, what? <laughs> I haven't heard that name in years. He's like, you know her? It's like, I, you kind of do. <laughs> and I told him that, you know, back in Chicago at the hotel, um, her camera disappeared. We stayed in touch. Breakfast club, um, weird science, etc. And wow, that's that's amazing. Tell her hi from Neville. He says I will. I'll mention my name. I said I don't know if she'll remember me, but so he called me after his lunch and said she is so happy to hear your name again because it's been so long, and it's nice to know that you're working in the industry and things are going well for you um she'd love to get together to just chat i said oh, that'd be wonderful that chat has evolved into like to this day and i can't say specifics but we're working together on doing things in the industry uh-huh. and why would that happen if i was kissing her butt in chicago because i wanted to be an actor and I knew that she was a Hollywood producer. And you think about the dynamic back then. 
I'm 17 or 18 years old, aspiring actor in Chicago who wants to be in Hollywood. I had every reason to be disingenuous and manipulate the opportunity. But instead, I'm not saying I'm great. I'm saying that instead what came naturally was she's a person. She's This is what she needs dealt with. This is not about you, Neville. And don't make it about you because that's just gross and, you know. I have no desire to hang out with very successful people who are disingenuous. In fact, I, I distance myself from it. Sure. Because at the end of the day, life is a very different thing than just getting to work in Hollywood. Hollywood is great. Movies are great. But I've been to, I've been in the trenches in real life in um, third world countries. And I've seen what life is and what matters. And that you never, you should never forget, never lose sight of. And quite honestly, one of the reasons I'm very interested in getting to direct and getting to tell stories, I have an agenda. I definitely do. I have a secret plan that is to utilize everything that I've achieved thus far that might get me attention. And this comes, this awareness, by the way, came from Face Off because. I recognized, having been on television, that people were interested in paying attention to you, right or wrong. It hasn't happened yet, but this is my goal. I don't know why I'm sharing my dream with the world here. Because the world clearly is listening. <laughs> um, <laughs> you never know. Yeah, yeah, it is possible. Um, <laughs> the goal is to, yeah, I'd like to do some science fiction stuff. I'd like to do some thriller, drama. I really want to do stuff that brings awareness to... Um, issues that I think are very important. People with albinism in Tanzania and the fact that their limbs are being cut off for uh, witchcraft. And we're talking babies or elderly people, young kids getting their teeth knocked out and their tongues cut out and an arm cut off all in an evening, all for the use of um, uh, making someone profit from their farm doing better or getting elected as a politician. You know, the educated, my fingers are going up in quotes, the educated Tanzanians who will do this, uh, take the limbs off of someone. And not many people know this. And this, I'm not even talking about the, the real horrors behind it. Uh, I'm, I'm not describing it in detail, but it's absolutely unbelievable. That would be not a great film to make because what a fun journey that would be. <laughs> nice bit of entertainment. It's a roller coaster ride. No. It's it's one of the things I want people to be aware of. Yeah, in the know hopes, about and understand, yeah. In the hopes to change. Because there's nothing worse than awareness. Awareness is one of those things like getting it out there, making people aware. We've become so numb to, yeah, I'll heart that. I'll like that. I'll maybe even pass it on. I've Think, done my part. By I've done my part. This, I gave it yeah. the office. So I, I don't need to do more. I'm aware that female circumcision is happening and it's bad. But... I've got a tennis game tonight, so I've really got to work on my my uh, my swing or whatever you call it in tennis. If you have a, a vision, um, you know what to go for. You know, you know what every day means. But if that vision, like if somebody says, God, you know what? I, I desperately want to own a Lamborghini by the time I'm 28. That's what I'm about. And that is that is people's goals. <laughs> I want to get that Lamborghini or somebody gets obsessed about, you know, the new Louis Vuitton bag or whatever it is. 
okay, those are goals too. And they will motivate you. I want to have my beach body by August, which I do want, but it will not happen. Um, August is pretty soon. <laughs> it is. And take a look at me. <laughs> I've got a face for radio. You know? <laughs> body. I got a beach body for a podcast. <laughs> uh, but, you know, those are things that motivate people. Do I agree with those? Eh, it's it's arrogant of me to disagree. When you have a goal that you truly feel is bigger than you, the uh, the motivation to achieve it and the energy required to get there um, is is fueled by the importance and the, the levity of that goal. Can be a child, can be a wife, husband relationship it should not be a lamborghini or louis vuitton bag um they're fine but you know let, let's let's put our energies in this the stuff that matters you know like at the comic-con thing i started to say maybe i said it outside um that if you've been given the opportunity to present your work on a larger scale then i think you have a responsibility to be conscious of the impact that that has on people uh, well, I got to say this. Uh, we this haven't was, finished. We're not done. No, because oh, okay. I need to punctuate this with <laughs> given the opportunity working with Michelle Manning and developing film. I went down this path of creating a teaser for a film, which I've written, which I'm very proud of its potential um, that this teaser required it to be much bigger and better than I'm capable of. So. Um, through a variety of connections, uh, Jillian Stein, and uh, she basically brought to my attention a few creative people. One of them, I believe, was on your podcast, Leonidas. Yeah. Leo. And um, he mentioned another dude who knows how to run a camera. What's your name again? AJ. <laughs> I always forget how to spell that, too. It's the weirdest thing. But... It was introduced to you and both you and Leo put the finishing touches on some pickup shoots for the, the, the polish that this particular teaser needs, which is going to be going out soon to um, some pretty wonderful people that hopefully they'll have interest in doing it. But it's, it's just amazing how it all comes down to introduction being introduced to people being introduced to like minds and uh being you know it's hard to say if we're good people you and i we like each other so i would assume that <laughs> or we at are. least yeah yeah we at least are good in each other's eyes but <laughs> i'm i'm indebted to you as i've said many a times and so grateful to you and leo and all the others that you guys brought in uh who were people that i don't know that um should this adventure continue, you know, I'm hoping that all the people that were bobbing up and down in my swimming pool <laughs> trying to make it look like the Mediterranean. Um, Which, by the way, I have to tell people this because I didn't know if you were going to bring up your, this project or mm -hmm. not. But uh, when you talk about um, having a commitment to the craft, mm -hmm. Neville actually built the side of a boat on the edge of his pool. In fact, I'm pretty sure you bought that house because you knew you could build. There was a little, there was a little <laughs> bit of it. I had to make a decision fast because my wife was pregnant, but, um, 
but it, the pool was definitely the tipping point of like <laughs> ooh i can actually finish this set piece <laughs> yeah it's but again you know you don't we and those who are listening who are of like minds you don't necessarily pat yourself in the back thinking yeah i built a boat in my pool that's that's to be commended i would look at somebody else who's doing it and and say what you just said which you know thank you but we we both do that and the whole thing about being collaborative is with you and leo involved because you were involved before i even started bringing wood out by the pool <laughs> and that's the thing is you know I, yeah i should have a very clear vision and i think that i did but it means being open to others uh vision if they're going to collaborate you can't just do what I'm going to tell you because I know that that's not the way to collaborate. Well, and, and you know, you give me credit and I say thank you very much, but I didn't do that much. I mean, Leo did a lot more on your project than I did, but uh, I'm just happy to be helpful in any way. Well, it's it's significant. You know, the whole thing about the the analogy of foundation, whether it be, and this is why I think it applies to your podcast, if you're a filmmaker you're a visual artist if you're a skier if whatever it is the, the craft the thing that you want to do the foundation that you build pour however you want this analogy to go this metaphor to go um, which is made up of education uh, learning the tools you're building that foundation uh, it's made up of people it's made up of the connections again whatever it is that you're trying to achieve if you shortcut the foundation, if you leave a few things out and your aspiration is to build the tallest building, let that be the metaphor for the, the, the goal here. That foundation is Leo. He was a huge part of it from the get-go, which, by the way, I was told two years ago today by Jillian Stein. She said, did you know that two years ago today is when we started that project? <laughs> did you know that I was supposed to be your first AD? Oh no! Originally on the original shoot, but for some reason, I I was I had to go out of town or something for that original shoot, and I was really mad, and I was aware of it as it was going on constantly. I was talking to Jillian about it, and uh, talking to Leo. Bummer. Well, we had a good guy, <laughs> but I, I would have loved to have had you there. But you know, you were pivotal. Point being, you were one you know section of rebar and cement that without you, it this would not have. Um, turned into what it is which is currently nothing <laughs> until i finish it but <laughs> how's that for a compliment it wouldn't have turned into the nothing i, it I appreciate being rebar in a building <laughs> that's never going to be built is that what you're saying <laughs> yes you know those construction sites where the building is just partially built like what a, what a shame they had what's such going a on with that but you know it is um well and it, vice versa you i mean i think this is why i feel like uh we have kindred spirits because we're filmmakers when i all of a sudden had this uh crazy tv thing i was going to do uh i came to you for help and you immediately you were in the middle of star trek and you know probably 50 other things that i didn't even know about and shazam. you were like yeah shazam <laughs> clearly i didn't know about yeah. and uh and then you were just like sure what do you need and you dropped everything and you talked to me for two hours on the phone. You I didn't drop everything uh, for anyone who uh, was listening. Who <laughs> was a part of Shazam or Star Trek. Those I didn't drop. Did you <laughs> just tell me that you didn't cancel on James Cameron to talk to me on the phone? Cause I was having lunch with Jim throwing back some tequila, smoking a cigar with Arnold. And I was like, guys, 
I got to cut this short. <laughs> I got to go. <laughs> but but to be honest, that that show, you know, I have some experience in visual effects. I don't have any experience in creature design. And this particular character had a very um, specific kind of transformation. Yeah. And I had no idea how to get it done. And and your ideas and the things that you had done with Star Trek that we were able to sort of use similar techniques in the end worked out beautifully. But I had, I'd still, when we were shooting it, I had no, I was like, well, Neville thinks this will work. So hopefully it works. And the only reason I think I had an idea was because of the people that I knew that had done it. I never applied this to a person. I never mixed it in a jar. Well, and by the way, you also let you, you brought on uh, Meg Wilbur from Mm -hmm. it was a contestant on face off. Yeah. And she was fantastic. She did a great job. And um, Jamie Kelman, who is a major makeup artist in the world, um, met him on Star Trek. I actually met him before, but we worked on Star Trek uh, and Star Trek into darkness. And he had developed this, formula this recipe and when you mentioned it i thought oh yeah that's that's the guy to reach out to and so you know to jamie's credit um he had at the time you know dare i say come up with a proprietary thing uh, and i asked him respectfully are you willing to share that recipe um not really with me but with someone you don't know at all (laughs) Uh, and with a face-off contestant, which, you know, not every makeup artist in the world um, likes that show for whatever reason. Well, for reasons I know, but um, so I, I asked him with great trepidation of, Jamie's a good guy, I know this, but I'm, I might be putting him in an uncomfortable spot of, <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of a no. He was immediately, what do you need? Um, and, and shared. And again, a testament to uh, the majority of what I'd like to think is the, the way the makeup world operates and the, the creature world operates of here's my brushes, here's my tools, here's how I did it. Can you do what I do? <laughs> Probably not. But um, th- that's the greatest thing about being comfortable with your talent or comfortable at least with the awareness that it's all about passing the baton. Because- well, but you're also skipping a very important thing to me, which is that you reached out even further than yourself to other people that you weren't sure if they were willing to help and you were willing to put your own relationship with that person on the line for me. And that's, that's just incredible. Well, yeah, but isn't that what it's supposed to all be about? Yes, (laughs) but not everybody would do that. Thank you, by the way, for being on the podcast. Thanks I know for inviting you're me. Incredibly busy, and I live a million miles away from <laughs> yes. everything. I'm going to have to take a flight back. Home. <laughs> it might be faster. Yeah. <laughs> if, I, if I drive to Vancouver, I could get a flight back to Burbank quicker than it will be to drive home. <laughs> That's very possible. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no. The the things that you were saying about the the film industry and um, and just you know any industry really like being a good person and, and owning your own stuff, your own beliefs, Yeah, you know, uh, it applies to anything, not just the film industry. No, not at all. No, I've, I've been in multiple industries 
um, to know that your basic perspective on life transcends you know all, all things so look in the mirror constantly work on yourself not to say that one is broken but it's just like if you want to be physically fit um and and most people are willing to invest in getting a really good golf swing learning how to throw pottery um learning how to cook french cuisine we take time out of our lives to to do that we buy the books we do the courses but there is so little importance placed on getting really good at the craft of being a good person you know um and it's almost uh, shameful if you say to someone i'm working on myself it's like oh you're from la aren't you <laughs> <laughs> you can work on yourself if you're from Iowa. Um, we all need to uh, get fit mentally and sustain that. And we're more encouraged to work on our golf swing versus, you know, what, what does it mean to be a good dad? Really, what does that mean? I'm going to spend time thinking about it. I'm going to read books. I'm going to talk to other people. And I'm going to work on being a good dad. That, it happens, obviously. But... Most of us just wing the most important things in life. Being a good person, being a good father, being a good husband, being a good wife. Um, we, you know, how do you get great at relationships? Oh, it's all trial and error. You just got to try it and then you know, it doesn't work out. Why didn't it work out? Who knows? Life's a mystery. <laughs> Not necessarily. If you read a book or went to a professional, I believe they're called psychologists, um, you can actually continue to get better at you. And I guess um, I, I really turned this podcast into something else now. But the point, <laughs> the point being is doing great art and doing great filmmaking and all of that stuff is a waste if you're not happy. And, you know, you, you will do such greater art and have greater narratives and stories to tell if it's coming from a place where you feel like you've worked on yourself. If you aren't finished being cooked, then there's, you know, you're not ready to be served up. <laughs> and that's kind of, it's a philosophy that applies to everything in life. That got heady. <laughs> no, but, uh, but good things for people to hear, I think. Thank you for, for coming out and. And sharing pleasure. all of this and sharing <laughs> sharing way too much uh, <laughs> do i owe you a bill is there a... no no oh, okay no. Uh, um and can pe we can follow you on instagram are you did you yeah, i'm on instagram i'm okay. not on facebook anymore i'm not very good at that keeping that stuff up but you can follow me. I'll give you my driver's license and uh, <laughs> driver's license plate number. You can just follow me. Oh, there you go. That's, <laughs> you that's the best way. They <laughs> but look, they can see some of your art uh, on Instagram. And it's just Neville Page at Neville Page? Or is it? Yeah. Yeah. On Instagram, okay. it's just Neville Page. Awesome. I'm not a believer of crazy handles. Yeah. Frankly. yeah. I, I just, I don't get it. The only reason mine is not just my name is because for years, people assume that I direct wedding videos. Yes. And so I change it to that director, AJ, just so just get the wedding out of it. It is my name. I yep. can't do anything about it. Yep. <laughs> God, it would just, I, I hadn't even thought of it, that that would be a label, your last name. 
It, it is. Why couldn't your parents have named you AJ Documentary? You know? <laughs> <laughs> AJ's, AJ Sci-Fi Thriller. Yes. Yeah. That, that would have been that, a better last name. That would have been a great last name. It would. I'm taking that. <laughs> that just about does it for this episode of The Call Sheet. I'm your host, AJ Wedding. You can follow me on Instagram for more information about The Call Sheet at that director AJ. See you next time.